Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and once again, I'm here with three big stories that the Empire Center has been writing about on our blog. Let's jump right in. The 2022 to 2023 school year and legislative session have come to a close, and we have a comprehensive review of the key legislative changes affecting education in New York on our blog. Some of the highlights, spending remains high and student achievement is at historic lows. And to solve this crisis, the Board of Regents and their Technical Advisory Committee are moving to lower standards and undermine measurement. New York's Common Retirement Fund suffered an investment loss of 4.1% in fiscal 2024, its worst performance since the stock market crash and financial crisis of 2009. The fund, which now stands just below $250 billion, supports pensions paid to members of the New York State and Local Retirement System, or NICELERS. Unsaid in the comptroller's announcement was the fact that last year's negative return, a whopping 10% below the fund's assumed annual gain for the year, will likely lead to an increase in taxpayer-funded Nicelers employer contributions starting in 2024. And our last story for the day, the price of offshore wind is about to go up, and electricity users across the Empire State will be on the hook for it. Two firms currently developing offshore wind projects have gone to the State Public Service Commission asking for an increase in the price they'll receive per megawatt hour of electricity produced. Given the financial realities of the situation, PSC's only two options are to grant the request or to delay the development of wind energy while the state seeks new offshore wind construction bids. Either way, costs will rise. For more information on these stories, and for more of what the Empire Center experts are writing about, visit our blog at empirecenter.org. And now, on with the show. All right, welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm Tim Hofer, President and CEO of the Empire Center, joined today by Tim DeRoche, who, among other things, is a best-selling author and president of the newly launched organization Available to All. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, to, on today's episode, we're going to talk about great names. So I just have to say, Tim, I think you have a great name. <laughs> we're going to spend 20 minutes on, on, on that. That sounds great. <laughs> the, the Tims um, of history. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be the worst episode, I don't think. <laughs> uh, all right, seriously. So uh, you and I met last year. We were introduced by a mutual friend who thought that I and the Empire Center would be interested in the book you wrote, which is titled "A Fine Line: How Most American Kids Are Kept Out of the Best Public Schools." So I've read the book. Um, even as somebody who follows these issues pretty closely, I was floored by a lot of what was in it. You kind of go through and explore the historical context of school district boundaries, um, the current practices of municipalities and school districts, and then also how it all got started, which goes all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education. So you want to just give us a few minutes on the book, what you went after, and sort of the point of doing that project? Yeah, I... The, the book really came out of some of the things that I was seeing in my neighborhood in Los Angeles. Um, we had a, a, a home, our first home, we've since moved away, but we had a home about two miles north of downtown L.A. And we were seeing some things going on there um, that I, I had been aware of kind of peripherally, um, vaguely. But as they they kind of hit home when I saw them going on um 
in my neighborhood as my daughter was getting to about school age. So the deal was, is there was one school in the neighborhood that everybody wanted to get their kid into one elementary school. Um, And we were in the heart of the LA Unified School District. And the way you get your kid into that school is you buy a home within this very misshapen zone, right? That is drawn by the district. So these are the whole neighborhood is covered by the Los Angeles Unified School District, right? The the district is big and sprawling. So there are no district lines, but um, what there are are these attendance zone lines, which are drawn by the district to say who goes where. And so there's this coveted public school up on the hill called Mount Washington Elementary. And what what I saw was that school was 60% white, whereas the surrounding seven elementary schools, the largest percentage of white students was 9%, right? And you've got this very misshapen zone. The zone already covers the most expensive homes in the neighborhood, right? The big single family homes on big lots, it covers most of those homes. So it's already expensive. But then on top of that, you're bundling this home with access to the school. So then people are overpaying for the same home if it's on one side of the street or the other. And so you're paying like a two hundred dollars to three hundred thousand dollar premium to get into that zone. And Mount Washington is getting more and more crowded, not because they've got this great school and they're they're opening it up to more and more people in the neighborhood. It's getting more and more crowded because young families are jamming into that zone um, and. Partly the reason for that is that the performance of the schools is so radically different. So Mount Washington, you know, 75 percent, 80 percent reading proficiency for students at that school. And then some of the surrounding schools are in the teens, right, like 16 percent reading proficiency. So in some places, if you're on one side of the street, you're assigned to go to a school with 16 percent reading proficiency. And and on the other side of the street, your playmate is assigned to go to the school with 80 percent reading proficiency. So that was a very, it was a big wake up call for me. And I had two curiosities. Number one, is this going on in other places? Is this some micro thing going on in my neighborhood of LA? Um, or is it going on more broadly in our country? And then number two, what's the legal basis for that, right? Like how does the district turn away a taxpayer, right? A voting taxpayer who lives within a half mile of the school and they just say, oh, no, you can't come to this school. We drew a line. Right. And so those so before you before yeah. you answer that question, I mean, what you're describing is there are two big problems inherently in the existing system. One is there's this racial divide that's happening and that's that's not caused by government, is it? But maybe perpetuated by government in terms of where they draw those lines around the school district and the housing that pops up in the successful ones. But then, you know, more problematically, um, you're telling us that there are public schools that perform, some perform better than others. That's totally yeah. shocking. Well, um, right, exactly. But, but I mean, it, I think, that's a big problem, though. Well, and we knew, I mean, I knew that. I knew there were good public schools or quote unquote, coveted public schools or good public schools with high levels of performance and then those with low. What I was surprised by is how often you can find them right next door to each other, right? right. And yes, the, the racial divide is something that's important and you can see it, but more importantly, they're not dis- discriminating on the basis of race. They're discriminating based on where you live. So a white kid, right? is also turned away from that school, even if they live a half a block away and they've paid taxes. And I I think 
we can overlook that that is just as big of an injustice, right? But certainly the racial divides in the schools, the racial divides are one way you can see that the lines are doing something, right? They are um, providing privileged access to uh, a public school. And I, I actually think these elite public schools in the city centers um, really function as quasi-private schools, right? Um, and, and you know, I make the, as you know from the book, I make the case this is very similar to redlining. And, and when you line up the maps from the red line, you know, the discriminatory racist redlining maps that were used to prevent people from getting housing assistance back in the 30s or say, hey, housing assistance for these people who live in these good parts of town and we're not going to give housing assistance to people who live in the shadier parts of town. Right. Well, these maps, these attendant zone maps are doing much the same work. And in many in many cases, the the redlining, the current modern day attendant zone actually replicates the map and and still boxes out the people of color, the immigrants, the working class folks who live in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Thanks. for I just that clarification, I think, is important to set up the rest of it. So, yeah. So, all right. So you so you've drawn this out. And then what did you so now that you figured out what these disparities are, then what? I mean, what's the what's the context of how that how we got to that spot? Um, so so the con the context is, you know, we have a system that sort of is based on scarcity, right? And that allocates access to certain schools based on where you live, which to me is a fundamental violation of the promise of public education, right? We all, like the Horace Mann quote, right? This is supposed to be the great equalizer. It's supposed to give everyone a fair shot, but we allocate seats based on where you live, which means the best schools are reserved for people who can afford to live in those areas. It's also a violation of, um, you know, the promises that we make in, in our, um, in our courts, in our constitution, right? So we, we, so for example, the Brown v. Board of Education ruling, right? Chief Justice Warren says, the if the if the government's going to provide a public education, it has to make the schools available to all on equal terms. That's where we get the um, the name of our new organization. The schools are not available to all on equal terms, and yes, we got rid of, uh, you know explicit racial segregation, turning kids away from certain schools because of their race. We got rid of that. But in no sense have we made the schools available to all on equal terms. And I'll say that a lot of states have written into their state constitutions um, clauses that say that the public schools must be open to all. Or some, some states have statutes that, that make the same claim the same promise. And we simply aren't living up to that promise right now. And so I think it's it's been very damaging for our social contract where working class folks know, hey, there are good public schools. Um, I just know that they aren't going to let my kid in to those schools. The, they, I, I don't think they know the details of how they're being kept out, the, the um, you know, the exact administrative details of how, how that works, but they know, hey, there are good schools. I can't get my kid into those schools. I'm stuck in this school that is really not functioning very well and, and where the kids are not performing very well. Right. Well, and this is, I mean, I think this will bring a tone. I, I imagine most of our listeners are in New York. 
Um, and certainly yeah, the districts here are set up in a similar way where you live within a district boundaries. And, and often people are making decisions about where they live based on the school district where their yeah. children would go um, based on the performance of those school districts. So you see that sort of in the in that public promise you're talking about. And, and people are making those decisions as best they can um, within the limited whatever they've got in terms of resources. Um, so it's a great book. It's it's really well written and accessible, I think, even for people who aren't sort of ingrained in this. So so thanks for that. Um, so that book led to this new organization, which you just mentioned, called uh, Available to All. Tell us about tell us about that. Yeah. So really, I started thinking about um, why. Why is this I, this? Why are these lines? What what are they violating? Like what are they violating? And 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 it came down to they're violating this promise, right? That the public school system is available to all. That the public schools are available to all. And and one of the things I've learned in the in the couple of years since I published that book is that there are other ways, right? That public schools try to cherry pick their kids, right? The most common way, kind of the 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 foundation of the whole system is this system of geographic allocation and geographic discrimination of, you know, I'm going to turn you away because your address doesn't fit in this in this zone. But there are lots of other ways that public schools try to cherry pick their kids. And, and there's been some attention in recent years to charter schools, right, who that try to cherry pick their kids. And there are examples of charter schools violating the law. What I like to point out, though, is that the reason those have been those cases have been so high profile and they've gotten attention is that we hold charter schools to a very high standard, a high legal standard. Right. We require charter schools to take all comers in many cases. They have to hold a lottery in many cases. Um, in most states, charter schools are forbidden from discriminating against you in enrollment based on where you live, at least within the district. And. That is not the standard that we hold traditional public schools to, right? Traditional public schools um, don't have to take all comers. Um, they don't have to hold lotteries in most cases. They um, they discriminate against you based on where you live. And so I just came to believe that there was a need for a watchdog organization to kind of be looking out for public school access. So we are a nonpartisan watchdog defending equal access to public schools. So certainly we want to go after what I call educational redlining, and we want to move towards a system in the long term where public schools can't turn you away because of your address, right? Now there are that's a that's a long-term goal. There are lots of political hurdles to getting there, but we want to move in that direction. And we've got several way, you know, steps we can take in that direction to de-emphasize the lines. Um, so for example, removing loopholes from open enrollment laws, um, 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 decriminalizing address sharing. You know, we've got examples of of moms being, you know, single moms being put in jail because they use a parent's address to get their kids into a better school. So a few examples there, but there's also these other examples. So in Arizona, for example, they do have a lot of open enrollment, but there's a loophole in that law. Um, same thing in Wisconsin, where a district can turn down a kid simply because they have a disability or they have an IEP. So, um, you know, we want to put in place procedural protections for kids with IEPs so that that schools can't just categorically say, oh, we don't have room for you. Um, you you have an IEP and we're just going to say no to your open enrollment request. Um, similarly, magnet schools often 
Magnet schools are often giving preferential enrollment to wealthy children, right? Magnet schools, and there's a kind of a, the, the reason for that is the magnet school is created to reduce racial segregation, right? Usually. And, but then they build the school or they convert the school, they invest in the school. They have a hard time drawing in white families because a lot of the white kids are already going to these educational red line schools that are really good schools to begin with. So they can't pull in the kids. So they can't get the racial desegregation that they want. They can't get the ratios right. So in order to get um, a balanced school, they, they give a huge advantage to wealthy white kids who apply. It's sort of the untold story of magnet schools in this country that, you know, they're, they're built to address these racial inequities, right? And these, these uh, income inequities, but then we end up giving preferential enrollment to wealthy kids, right? So we're just gonna stand against all of that kind of stuff. You know, if public schools are going to play this critical role in our social contract, then we need them to be open to the public and open to the public equally. And that means taking all comers, doing lotteries whenever possible, and um, not, you know, discriminating against families based on arbitrary um, uh, uh, variables. Well, yeah, which I mean, goes back to sort of the whole, if you go back to this, to, to whether it's racial desegregation or economic or otherwise, that's, that was the point. We've just gotten away from that. I mean, you're talking about some of these things as dues and the impact is real. Um, on your website, you highlight the story of a mom in Ohio went to jail for doing this. Yeah. Can you tell that story quickly? That's interesting. Yeah, Kelly Williams Bolar, she's working with us. She's our parent liaison. Um so Kelly um, lived in Akron, Ohio. She was working in the Akron Public Schools um, and, you know, said, this is not the environment where I want my daughters to be educated. Her dad lived 10 minutes away. He owned a home in, in a suburban district, but it was very close to her home, 10 minutes away. So she enrolled her kids there. They were thriving in that school. The district hired a private eye, and this is becoming more and more common. Um, the private eye followed her around decided that she didn't live in the district. They kicked out her kids. 18 months later, they came back and filed charges against her and put her, both her and her dad in jail. Really horrific story. It, it generated a lot of interest uh, nationwide. So one of our goals is just to decriminalize address sharing. You know, th this is something that People do this up and down the economic spectrum, right? So I, in talking about these issues of cocktail parties and, and um, dinner parties, lunches, breakfast for the past five years as I was working on the book, everyone has a story of jumping districts or jumping zones, using an incorrect address, using an out-of-date address to get your kid into the school that you think is the right fit for them. You know, we have very, very selective prosecution of those crimes, right? And really, um, it's often low-income families of color that are prosecuted for that particular crime when we know it goes on up and down the income spectrum. I was talking to a mom in Malibu, like a very wealthy family, who said, oh, yeah, we, we wanted our daughter to go to Santa Monica High School, but uh, she, you know, we weren't zoned for that, so we just paid our neighbors for their for their gas bill. You know, and and this is very common. It's, you know, I think it'll resonate with listeners because, I mean, almost every one of us either has done this 
or our parents have done it, or our uncle's done it, somebody in our family, it's a very common part of American life. And it doesn't make any sense, right? In New York, for example, in New York City, they have a policy of once you're in, you're in. So the consultants um, who help families find the right school in New York, public schools, they tell families, well, just rent a home, right? Rent an apartment for three months, so you can get your kid in and then move back to your more, your, you know, to your affordable neighborhood. Um, um, and then the kids in, like you get them in a kindergarten and they're in through grade eight. That's just, um, I have no problem with the family doing that. They're playing by the rules that have been set out. I have no problem with a family buying into a zone, right? I just think we've set up the rules so that there's this ridiculous game to play. And I think it's been damaging to our social contract. And I, I think it's had tremendous social costs that we have not acknowledged. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, you, you tell this story about um, the, the Ohio family and, and, and without condoning, you know, behavior breaking the law or going against the rules, it, it, it really highlights the issue that you just described, which is you've put families in an impossible place because of course we want our kids to go to the best schools. And of course we want them to get to the best education. We can't always provide that. We can't always get in there. And so if you have to find a loophole, I mean, I think it's very telling that there's so many people who are willing to cross that line to make that happen, which makes the case for, well, how do we, how do we, how do we fix this? How do we get to that? And that's, that's exactly what you're working on, which is why we thought this was an important topic. Um, so you've talked a little bit about local and state rules, and then there's probably a federal component to this. How does that sort of all interplay and in, whether it's your efforts or how we get to the solution? Yeah, well, there's there's a federal law that puts constraints on how districts draw attendance zones. Uh, it's called the Equal Educational Opportunities Act. So we are looking into um, litigating some cases based on that act to try and draw, draw attention to this problem. Um, you know, fundamentally, I mean, the courts will not agree with me, right, that in terms of equal protection, but I believe that these attendance zone boundaries in particular are a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, because you're treating people very, very differently based on whether they live on one side of the street or the other. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's consistent with the spirit of equal protection. Now, now getting the courts to intervene and, and say that, hey, the government has violated your, your you know, equal protection, that is a very difficult thing to do. The courts are very reluctant to do that. But I, I think I would, what I would ask is for people to consider, well, does it violate the spirit of equal protection? And I think it clearly does. Um, but we, we're also looking into using some of the state laws. We're going to file public records requests. We're going to try to uncover some of the shenanigans that go into this because we've really put school access into the hands of the politicians. And you can see this wherever they have, wherever they need to draw, redraw the lines, right? Either because there's been significant growth in a district or because there's, they have to close schools and you have to redraw the lines of who goes where. These are very, very contentious fights. And the reason they're contentious is that we've decided to say, OK, who gets to go to what school is in the hands of the politicians. We should not at all be surprised when the most politically powerful constituents then end up with access to the most coveted schools like that. That is, by definition, what's going to happen. And I don't think the politicians should have control over who goes to what school. I don't I don't I don't think. I don't think that yields good outcomes for our society. 
Well, you're, you're saying this to an audience that um, during last year's redistricting cycle um, had to have a court overturn their politicians' lines that were drawn for new political boundaries. But this is basically the same thing. If you look at school district maps, um, they, they have the same kind of odd, irrevocable shapes that that, school, that um, legislative districts end up with. So I think that's something for our folks to think about is, I mean, that is the same process. You're going to let people go in and draw lines. And if you look at your school districts, they're not contiguous. They don't make a lot of sense. Some of it is map making. Some of it is necessary. And some of it is absolutely not. Um, sure. Tim, as these always do, we went, we went, we're over time. We're having fun. Um, the book is a fine line, how most American kids are kept out of the best public schools. The new organization is available to all. And the website is... Available to all.org. Um, yeah, exactly. An email list if anybody wants to sign up uh, for updates on how we're fighting uh, for parents and equal school access. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks so much. Thanks for doing this work. Thanks for being on the show. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tim. Hello, my name is Kyle Davis, and I'm the Director of Public Affairs at the Empire Center. And today I'm speaking with Cam McDonald, the Executive Director of the Government Justice Center. Uh, who recently filed an amicus brief on the court case Biden versus Nebraska and the Department of Education v. Brown. Um, so we're very excited to be able to sit down and talk about that today. How are you doing today, Cam? I'm great. So Cam, uh, kind of the overarching question here, why did the Empire Center and the Government Justice Center believe that it was important to get involved in this fight regarding student loan debt? So, um, you know, it was it was very clear from the outset that the, um, you know, this executive action by the, the president and the Department of Education to forgive more than four hundred billion dollars of student loan debt was extraordinary. And most, you know, generally, you know, the honest viewers of the situation recognize that it was probably outside of the executive's power to do such a thing. You know, the, the power of the purse is supposed to be with the legislature. And uh but the questions involved, as the case evolved, as the rulemaking uh, took place, uh, the Biden administration kept on moving the ball. So uh, they would announce the, what they were doing and promptly get sued by somebody who was injured by their actions. So they would they would change um, what they were doing. And so there were a couple of times where everything just changed. And so the issue that became really important was who would have standing to actually challenge this extraordinary thing. And it was important to the Empire Center and the Government Justice Center because whatever precedent the Supreme Court sets around these issues regarding excessive executive action and standing can have a trickle-down effect down to state law. And we want to be able to be assured that uh, as time goes by, we can keep our own executive in check in here in New York in the form of the governor and the executive chamber. So now I think you just mentioned it, but there, there seem to be two main arguments in the court case. So it was uh, the standing issue, but then also the presidential overreach issue. What was your main argument in your brief? So the the, the Empire Center and the Government Justice Center's uh, argument focused only on the standing issue. Um, and so um, basically what we were arguing was that the court should not be having 
um, such a narrow view of standing that it permits these sort of this calamitous, I think a word we used it a few times was a, a calamity of uh, of a standing doctrine that allows such executive uh, ab abuse um, that violates the separation of powers. So it was centered on um, the issue regarding standing before the Supreme Court is that you have to have a case for controversy, which means that you have to have some sort of concrete injury that's traceable to the actions that are being taken that um, a, a court can uh, address or re give redress uh, if in a favorable ruling for you. So we argued that case and controversy should not be so terribly uh, narrowly uh, interpreted based on a um, what was the state of the law when the Constitution was adopted, when case when the word case was put into the Constitution regarding uh, Article Three standing, and uh, two on uh, preservation of the separation of powers. So, according to the court, and, and according to your argumentation, why is Missouri's standing sufficient for the Supreme Court to address the case? Because I think Missouri was a little bit different than maybe some of the other actors in this case. Yeah, so we, our brief basically said, yeah, Missouri for sure has standing. They've got a you know concrete injury that's directly traceable to what they're doing because uh, one uh, an instrumentality of the state, uh, a public corporation called Mohila, which uh, administer student loans in Missouri was going to be harmed by uh, its inability to collect interest and fees on 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 loans that were 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 forgiven, which would go directly, which went directly to injuring Missouri's pocketbook. Uh, so that was never really in dispute, and and also standing states have been given sort of what's called special solicitude when it comes to standing in Supreme Court cases. So um, you know you can't. You can't get standing if you argue. The idea is that you, as an individual, can't get standing if you are arguing for, you know, a, a broad-based harm that's not really individual to to you. But um, in in the I think it was in 2007 in a case called Massachusetts v. EPA, uh, Massachusetts had standing on a global warming issue simply because its beaches were going to be eroded by the rising seas from global warming, which of course harms everyone, but somehow the, the court you know, will find standing for states, uh, given them this special solicitude for standing. So Missouri was always kind of a given. It was whether or not standing should be broadened to others. So I think I think you exactly hit my next question, and maybe you can just reiterate it. So so what? why did you argue that the court's standing doctrine should not be too narrow? Why is that an issue? So the, the the Supreme Court's standing doctrine is really something that is intended to preserve the separation of powers, which you know kind of is is fundamental to the constitutional rule of law in a republican form of government. You've got the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the and the court and the judiciary that are all supposed to stay in their lanes but remain a check on each other. And I think what has happened is. A, some of the, the the cases at the time of the founding that we cited from English common law um, were provided standing to people where 
uh, one of the branches of government was out of control. And here we have a situation where the executive is out of control and the legislature is not taking control. And, you know, the founding, I don't think the founders really ever imagined us having a legislature that would just step aside and let the executive get away with spending or, uh, you know, forgiving $430 billion of debt. They just had their main focus was on the tyranny of the legislature at the time. So our, you know, my the point of view that we're expressing is that the court can't be sitting back if the legislature is not going to do its job and the executive is going to exceed its authority, that the judiciary does, in fact, need to step in as a matter of constitutional separation of powers principle and not grant standing so narrowly that the executive runs amok. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that in your brief, uh, you you just referenced English common law, that you referenced the Blackstone commentaries, and I I found it very interesting reading through all that. Um, So your main your main argument is that separation of powers doctrine uh, should should principle should be in the court standing doctrine. So that is applicable to standing. Yeah, it, I mean, it already the separation of powers you see in Department of Education v. Brown, uh, Justice Lito does talk about the separation of powers in the context of um, of the standing interpretation there. What they basically found there was that the plaintiffs had asserted an injury that couldn't be fairly traceable to the Secretary of Education's um, actions. But our argument is that. In a different factual scenario than what you had here, or eventually, in a there, you know, there's going to may there there may come a time when the 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 Supreme Court needs to broaden its its definition of standing to address uh, executive overreach, which they did not need to get to here because Missouri had standing, and and the Brown plaintiffs were just too um, couldn't really trace their their injury to the actions of the Secretary of Education based on um, comp- complicated rulemaking arguments. So, Cam, how would you respond if someone challenged your amicus brief saying that the pro- the proposed views on Article 3 standing fail to advance the principles of judicial restraint and democratic accountability? That seems to be maybe a, a common argument that folks are putting forward. Yeah, I guess, you know, there are philosophical differences amongst uh, people of, 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 you know, from the, coming from the same political perspectives from both the left and the right on, you know, on judicial restraint and what it should be and whether um, whether it's a good idea or bad. I guess our argument is what's most important is that the court needs to be preserving the fundamental principles of the separation of powers under the constitution. And it needs to then, if 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 it is going to broaden its standing doctrine to address these things, it's got to find its own sort of rules and set, set the boundaries uh, coherently and um, uh, conservatively, I guess, or whatever it would be, so that not everybody can just run into court. That's that's for sure. So it's going to be, you know, fact driven, um, and and they're perfectly capable of doing such a thing. So, Cam, what does this mean for your standing argument going forward? Uh, 
so basically, as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, nothing has changed. It found precedent from 70 years ago to give Missouri standing. It applied its typical standing test to the individual plaintiffs in Department of Education v. Brown. So I think the where this stands now is it will just be a matter of when there's the next uh, opportunity taken by the, the president uh, and the executive branch to um, uh, lawsuit proof an action that uh, parties will step in to say, no, 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 um, somebody's got to have standing in this instance um, based on um, the, the constitutional principles of separation of powers. Well, Cam, thank you for having this in-depth conversation with me. I found it very enlightening. I want everyone to be able to tune in next time to our next episode of Messages of Necessity. Until then. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.